Good morning again, Creekside. My name is Eric. I am privileged to be on staff here at the church, and it's my honor to open up God's Word with you today. So if you could open up in your Bible, 1 Samuel 17. We are part of an 18-week series through the life of David and Goliath, and we are going to cover verse 17 this morning. Um, I forgot got to announce um, we are having the women's ministry tables event here tomorrow at what time? 7 p.m. That's a time for the ladies to get together, get to know other people, get to fellowship with people they do know. And we encourage you, if you are a lady in this church, come on out tomorrow night. Well, we're going to be looking at a pretty big crisis This morning in our passage. Last week we left where they were in the valley of indecision. There was crisis around them on all sides. And this week we're going to see that that crisis begins to move people to action. And it begins to reveal a lot about what they truly believe and where they put their trust. And this last couple of years... As I was thinking about just a way for us to be able to see the relevance of this passage, I just started thinking that crisis over these last couple of years has revealed a lot regarding what people trust in and their their motivations. And I was going to talk about that, but then I realized that that's lazy because um, it's obvious that when we look at the world, it's pretty jacked up, right? If we stand here and just punch down on what the world is doing and believing, that doesn't really preach the gospel of grace. As I've looked at the present crisis the last couple of years, I've seen my motivations exposed and my trust exposed at different times. And when I started to think about that, that wasn't as easy to just rant about versus what I see in the news every day, right? But, you know, I've seen my responses become less patient with people, a little bit more judgmental, a little bit quicker to maybe judge a motive than I have been in the past. It's made me have to begin to look at what are my motivations? What am I trusting in? If I'm starting to see my response go the same way as the world. Now, I can validate it and say, well, I've had a tempered response compared to the rest of the world. Foolishness is foolish, folly is folly, sin is sin, right? Um, I've also seen in crisis, though I don't want to just be negative, um, I've seen God in some amazing ways. You know, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you everything about the last six months, but those of you that know us know that we've been in I think, you know, one of the largest crises we've ever gone through. And we've seen God in amazing ways. Ways that I've never seen him before and wouldn't have seen him otherwise. I've seen the church in her full, radiant, glorious beauty. In ways that when things are going well, people don't come alongside of you. Because they're coming alongside of other people that are hurting, right? But I've seen the church rise up. And be the church. And I've seen crisis also expose some really beautiful things. So what we're going to see in our text this morning is crisis reveals a lot about our trust and our motivations, good and bad. 
um, kind of the flow of our text today. There's this mounting crisis, and it's going to begin to reveal a lot of what different people who are engaged in this crisis are dealing with. And you've got to figure, like, if you've been keeping up with the war in the Ukraine at all, you understand that there's a lot of people that are impacted, right? You have those who are being invaded. You have uh, the soldiers. You have the innocent family. You have the invaders. You have all of the pundits on the outside. And then, you know, several steps removed, you have us and, you know, just the, the little bit of work that we've been able to do with the Czech people over to the Ukraine. And um, But you've seen a lot of different responses, just like you see in this text. I mean, in this text, you have so many people who are going to be impacted by this war and what comes out of it. So our text today, the the layout's a bit unusual. It uses dialogue and discourse to kind of drive the tension of the story, revealing a lot about the participants and revealing a lot about where their trust truly is. So basically, it's going to break down like this. You're going to have six verses that kind of set up the building crisis. And then over the next 16 verses, you're going to see 10 different back and forth discourses in only 16 verses. When that happens, that's unusual, right? You don't usually see 10 different conversations going on in such a short amount of scripture. So you have to ask, why was it written like this? And you're going to see that with each conversation, more and more about the trust and the motivations of the people's hearts are exposed. So if you'd stand with me, I'm going to read our first six verses, starting in verse 17. It says, And Jesse said to David his son, Take your brothers, an ephah of the parched grain, and ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also, take ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if the brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they all of the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took provisions and went. And as Jesse, as, as Jesse had commanded him, and he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And he talked with them, and behold, the champion, a Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. Lord, as we do live in a time where it seems like the intervals between crisis are shorter and shorter. God, I pray that we would put on the Lord Jesus Christ and respond as people of faith. Lord, may our motivations be revealed and may they be true. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, as the text opens in the passage that I just read, we see that Jesse's emphasis is still on David's older brothers. Just like in the previous passage, um, when Samuel comes to lay hands on a king from his family, and they put forth all of the older brothers first, and eventually David, um, the emphasis is still on the older brothers. And he's going to give great detail on what he wants to see as care for these older brothers. And 
when you see the great detail, it's just another reason, like I said last week, that we don't take this passage metaphorically because these aren't metaphorical cheeses that he's about to bring to the battlefield. These aren't metaphorical um, flour and grain that he's going to bring. These are details, detailing an actual battle that actually took place between actual people in a real place and time. And Jesse's commands are fourfold. He says, bring this food to your brothers. Then he says, you got to bring Jesus to the battlefield because you don't want your brother's commander going into battle without Jesus on his side, you know? So, <laughs> one Jesus ain't going to do it for that guy, though. He needs ten Jesuses. Um, see if your brothers are doing well and bring some kind of token back from them. Bring a pledge, he says, so that you know, so that I know that they're doing well. And when David shows up in verse 19, the battle had already begun. Remember when I said last week that they could no longer remain in the valley of indecision? That you can't just stay in a place when the Lord has commanded you to do something and you're starting to see battle coming in on all sides. Well, now the problem that they face is more severe. They're fighting the army and they still have to deal with Goliath in a few verses, the Philistine champion. I hope your heart's understand this, that when God has called you to something, even if it's dangerous, even if you perceive it to be risky, you are not safer by just staying put and doing nothing. You don't add to your ability to avoid risk. You're not going to add to your ability to avoid trial. I mean, in fact, if God has called you to something and you choose to just stay in the valley and do nothing... God may, in fact, need to love you so much that he sends you an additional trial to maybe unglue your pants from your seat and help you to move. God didn't call them to stay put, so guess what? He's not obligated to come up with a plan B that would result in their safety for if they decide not to listen to his plan and obey. And all of us have been or will be in a situation where the pain of doing nothing is greater than the pain of doing something, and that pain begins to motivate you to change. I mean, I've heard people go so far as to say that pain is really the only true motivator. Um, you know, before I came to Jesus, I was a drug addict and an alcoholic. And um, because I'm not a quitter, I went to three different rehabs before um, finally meeting Jesus and getting the help that I need. And I remember a guy that was, he would come in and bring these recovery meetings, and he would tell me, you're not going to change until the pain is great enough. And I couldn't fathom that. I was like, I'm in rehab, bro. And when I go, I have more pain awaiting me. And he's like, you going to change? Probably not. Well, then the pain still isn't great enough. The pain was not a motivator to make me want to change. Honestly, pain tends to be the primary catalyst to push people out of the valley of indecision. So in verses 20 and 21, you see that David rose early. Let's look at those again. 
David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded them. It's important to note where it says that he left the sheep with a keeper. That might just seem like a little um, side detail that's not all of that important. But David is actually going to be accused later on of being reckless and ignoring this very thing. So pay attention to why the Spirit would have included that detail. And he cares for the sheep and he cares for his father by making sh- sure that the sheep are well taken care of. And then he takes the provisions that Jesse had commanded, and he heads out to the battlefield. And as he gets to his brother's camp, they're headed out to war, it says in 22. And David and Israel and the Philistines, verse 21, excuse me, drew up for battle, army against army. So David leaves the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. So we're again met with great detail. Even though the war is imminent, he doesn't um, just abandon his post, forget what his father had asked about him, about the practical provisions. He actually takes those provisions, leaves them with the keeper of the battlefield for his brothers and the commander, and then he goes and he runs to the front of the battle. Notice that. Notice the posture of all of the people who had gone to the front of the battle thus far. We see people who are reluctantly going, people who are fearfully going. We're going to see people running away from the front line of the battle here in a moment. But David, in faith, runs to the battlefront, and he's greeted by his brothers. And again, he's doing just what Jesse had asked. And then we see great emphasis, again, used to explain just how imposing Goliath is. It says, As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name. They're just adding up all the superlatives here. Came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. Behold. You don't behold something unless it's something that's massive. You know, if I, if I showed up to the battlefield, I don't think people are going to be like, behold, <laughs> look at that guy. But Dustin, would you stand up for a moment? <laughs> behold, right? <laughs> so just the word behold, we're seeing that this is something to behold. And then we see that this is the Philistine champion. Just like he had announced in the previous week's passage, am I not the Philistine? The full embodiment of all that is the Philistines. And he's called the champion again. And as we looked last week, that was the man of the between. The man of the between the two armies standing between them to fight. And then it says Goliath by name. This is only the second time that his name is mentioned in the passage. All of the other times he's called the Philistine to make him sound just even more opposing. And then it says that he emerges from the ranks. I want you to like, if you've ever seen Lord of the Rings, put your mind on one of those battles where you just have clash against clash. And as if that's not difficult enough, you see a giant just breaking ranks and coming forward to the battlefield. And he shouts the same words that he had previously in verses 8 by eight through 10. The words are the same, but the author clues us in to something that this time it's going to be different. Look at the very end of verse 23. It says, and David heard him. 
you know, this is where you would hear some music like, dun, 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 because we're beholding this guy. The attention is clearly on the guy we're supposed to behold, but David heard him utter these words this time. And from there, we're going to see what I explained. Ten different responses, very different responses in faith and fear through the next remaining verses. So first, first you see the faithless response of all of the men of Israel. Look at me at verses 24 and 25. All of the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and he will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in all of Israel. So when they saw the man, Goliath, what does it say that they did? You guys look down. You Tell me their response. They fled, yeah. And not only did they flee, they were much afraid. What a, what a lame characterization of the armies of the living God. They fled, they were much afraid, and it uses the word all there, all of the men of Israel. The king, the brothers of David, they were all disheartened. This was supposed to be God's army, and they're running away with their tail between their legs. And they ask some questions. First one, have you seen this guy? Have you seen him? Like, why are you surprised that we're running? Have you seen the size of the trial that we're facing? Do you not understand that this guy is here to mock us? So not only is he going to kill us, he's going to do the thing that's even worse in 2022. He's going to use words against you. Um, I need to reel in my sarcasm sometimes, but I do think people would rather be killed sometimes than like, oh, you used words. Um, and then they say that the king is going to give great riches. He says he can marry his daughter. You're going to have a free house. That means no taxes is what it means, basically. Your father's house will be tax-free. Um, bizarre incentive to me for risking your life. Um, but when you put it all together, it's a strange response. Have you seen this guy? He's here to mock us, and he'll give you, the king will give you his daughter and take away your taxes if you kill him. And David responds to their fear and faith. Look at verses 26 and 27. It says, And David said to the man who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done for the man who kills him. So David asks a question. Wait, come again? Tell me again what's going to be done for the person who kills this Philistine? And the, and the way that he asks the question has a lot of nuance in it. But it's really tough. Remember what I told you? Goliath has been called throughout the book so far. What did I say his title has been? Uh, the, the Philistine. Now, what does David call him? There's a little switch here. This Philistine. 
He's no longer the Philistine. Up until now, he had been going up to war against the Philistine. In fact, like I told you, he's only called Goliath twice. Almost every reference to this champion is the Philistine. But to David, he's simply this Philistine. Goliath is not the Philistine. He's just a Philistine that will die like the rest of the Philistines. This Philistine is no different than any other Philistine. So let's kill them like we will their army, is what David is getting at. And I know this is a bit of a tangent, but it's what my soul has been feeding on this week as I've been going through this scripture. But as you go through crisis, as you go through trials, if I can encourage you to look at it as this trial, as this crisis... It's not the crisis. Once you begin to see it differently, it suggests that maybe God, in fact, sees it differently. So maybe God will allow the outcome of this to be different. The trial suggests that there's nothing like it. The trial suggests that this might be the trial to take you out. A crisis suggests I've been here before. I've got the t-shirt. I'll be here again. This is a crisis in a long line of a life of crisis that God has always been faithful in every single time. It's not the crisis. It's this present crisis. And God who brought you through past trials will bring you through this crisis as well. The crisis can define you. Oh man, that's Eric. Eric's going through the crisis with his daughter right now. Eric's going through the issue. This crisis, it's just one more opportunity for God to show himself to be God and be faithful in the midst of something really difficult. A crisis suggests that God who's brought me safe thus far, his grace can lead me home. So back to David's response by faith. First, he reveals that he's not really interested in killing Goliath for the reward. He wants to take away the reproach of Israel. Look again, he says, what should be done for this man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? He's not okay with the fact that this man is shouting things against the people of God and, by extension, defiling the name and holiness of his God. And I think, I hope that we can still understand this. I mean, with all of the public, very public, publicized failings of the evangelical church in recent years, it's hard when you hear about another megachurch pastor going under Another person who is defiled. I mean, it's even been friends of mine. Guys I started in ministry with are no longer in ministry. And and a lot of them have flamed out in some really outrageous ways. It makes the news. People want to chat about that. With the way that people gossip and slander about the church. And I'm not even talking about the mega churches. I'm just talking about average church life for some folks. When Christians are writing books and making blogs and podcasts focused 
around bringing reproach against other Christians. I find myself regular think, regularly thinking about David in this spot and wondering, who the heck are you, you uncircumcised Philistine, to talk about God's people? I mean, I won't mention by name, but there's this one podcast guy that loves to talk about the rise and fall of certain megachurches these days. And I had to write him a letter to ask him that very question. Like, who are you, you uncircumcised Philistine, to make soap operas about the people of God to click in and tune in for entertainment and to bring a reproach against God's people? And then David knocks him down another peg. He's not just this Philistine, he's this uncircumcised Philistine. Who is this Philistine who doesn't even have the God's blessing or God is not amongst God's covenant people? Who is he that I should be afraid of him? Then we really see David's faith coming through at the end of verse 26 when he says that he should defy the armies of the living God. Again, David didn't see this as a reproach against himself. He saw it against, as a reproach against his people, against God's people. And he felt like, who is this guy to be saying this stuff about my God? I wonder if the people who spend their time and efforts bringing a reproach against God's people were to think about this, if they would realize that they look more like the uncircumcised Philistine than they look like David. I, I preach on this point a lot. Uh, today is my 18th anniversary. Me and Marcy have been married 18 years today. Yeah. And like I've shared with you guys some time ago in the pulpit, the church is Jesus' wife. If y'all talked about my wife the way that people talk about the church, we'd be scrapping after the service. I mean, I have 18 years of love invested in this woman. I've got even more years of love invested in Christ's church. So why do we talk about that as if the church doesn't have a jealous husband who loves her and defends her? Then you see Eliab begin to respond in fear again. Look at verse 28. It says, Now Eliab... His eldest brother heard and he spoke to the men and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with, with, with whom have you left the sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart for you have come down to see the battle. And David says, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? Like I told you, words, people are weird about words these days. And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way and the people answered him as before. So his anger was kindled against David and he lashes out in fear and anger and he says, why have you come here? Well, there's an answer, just a few verses because dad told me to and to bring you dinner, you jerk. Um, With whom did you leave those few sheep? With a guy that I'm paying to take care of him so that I could bring you dinner and be obedient to my father? I know your presumption. He's saying, I know your motives, David. I know the evil in your heart. Even though I was 0 for 2 so far and wasn't correct on any of the assumptions I've made for you, I'm sure that I can guess the actual motivations of your heart. You came down here because you're bored and don't have TV 
and you want to watch the fighting. Boy, the irony of that is that David could have said all of those same things back to his brother. Why are you here? What, are you bored? Did you come down here to watch me fight for you? Did you need, did, did you need to see little brother end up winning the day? And it is so dangerous when people believe that they could be in the place of God and see people's motives. It's destructive, and it's often driven by fear. I mean, how many times over the last couple of years did we hear, these people are anti-vaxxers because, and these people are like, golly, you know this? Because they've spilled out their heart to you? You're sure on all these things that you're assuming and putting on people that you're correct because you can see their heart? With Eliab, fear turned into anger and the judging of other people's motives. And again, in David's faithful response, what have I done to you? You have a feeling that he's been there before with Eliab, right? He's playing, he's like, oh, we're playing the offended game, aren't we? Well, what are you offended about this time, pal? You got all that from one word, Eliab? All of that from one word. So he turns from his brother and he says, all right, whatever, and turns back to the mission at hand. And he says, so what's going to be done for the guy that kills this giant in front of us? The response of the people in verse 31 When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. So they hear the words, they send for Saul, and you see David's next response in faith as he's brought before Saul. He says, and David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Let no man's heart fail. Again, you start to see the motivations bleed through. You saw Eliab's motivations, and he was motivated at continuing to chip down the person that was going to actually go and do something. You see Saul's motivations through this passage, and it's to to run, save face, hide, and live another day. And then you see David's motivations, and he cares so much for the people of God that he says, let their hearts not fail today for I will go and take out the Philistine. And then you see Saul's faithless response. I don't think I was making up like the outline of this. These responses are just so in stark contrast as they're put right next to each other over and over through this text. And look at verse 33. It says, And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth. And he's been a a man of war from his youth. Encourage, I encourage you guys to be wary of the advice of people who tell you that they can't do something, that you can't do something, but won't lift a finger to do it themselves. Because you don't know how much fear is motivating their advice. He says, you can't go up against him. You're but a youth. This guy's been fighting since he was your age, and now he's twice your size, and he's an experienced warrior. You don't have the experience or size to go and fight When you're operating in fear, I've given you guys like a few tangents on on, on operating in faith. When you're operating in fear, sometimes you could be really oblivious to how your fear disheartens the other people around you. Be careful that you don't let fear spread like gangrene. David's response, though, in faith, and this is just the uh, of this passage. It's so good. Look at verses 34 through 37. 
But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when, they came, when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So David tells a story that recalls God's previous faithfulness. That is one of the primary weapons of our warfare. Throughout the Bible, God instructs his children, continue to retell the stories of my faithfulness. Don't just have them be this one-time thing, but bring your children into these stories of, our fa- of God's faithfulness. You see in Genesis where they would put up these Ebenezers, these stones of remembrance, so that when people came back to him, they would say, this was a time when our back was against the wall, and this is what God did. The book of Deuteronomy, the whole purpose of the book of Deuteronomy is second law, remember, and God just uses the word remember over and over. Remember the ways that I've been faithful with you when I brought you out of Egypt, and I brought you into this land. Why do we partake of communion. It's to remember God's past faithfulness in a visual way of, wow, the battles I could have never defeated. God was so good and defeated for me over and over and over. He looks at the present crisis through the lenses of God's past faithfulness. That might... Can I encourage somebody here to do that today if you're in a present crisis? looking at that present crisis through the lenses of God's past faithfulness and realizing that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and has not and will not change. And then David shares his motivation. He says, the God that brought me out of this, that's the same God that's going to kill the Philistine. If you read this and you're like, wow, David was so tough that he could fight lions and bears, so he must be tough enough to fight the Philistine. You're reading it wrong, and I think David would be offended by your reading if he was here. He's saying, it wasn't my time yet, and God called me to a job, and that job was to protect my father's sheep. So in order to do that job, God was faithful in that calling, and he defeated a lion. He defeated a bear, and guess what? This Philistine is no different than them. God's going to defeat them too. And then you see Saul yet again have his final faithless response here. Look at verse 39. He says, and David, oh, 38 rather, and Saul clothed David with his armor and put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. I mean, the irony here is dripping, right? Like if Saul was so confident in his armor, why isn't he wearing it when he is the man that was chosen already by the people to go up against the champion? He was supposed to be the man in the middle, but this man who has armor that he doesn't believe is going to save him is the armor that is going to save David? Did Saul miss the whole part? 
about how it was going to be the Lord to deliver his people. It's not going to be Saul's armor that delivers. David didn't need armor for the bear or the lion. So why the heck did Saul think that he would need that iron, uh, that armor now? And look how David responds again in faith. Our last two verses this morning. In verse 39, it says, And David strapped the sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took the staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook, and he put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. David rejects the armor. He didn't need to bear the king's armor because he was already covered in the king's armor, if you will. David had not trusted in armor or weapons or might previously through his life to get to this point, so he wasn't going to start using that as his battle tactic now when he was in such an acute crisis. So David approaches the Philistine without armor, oversized, outmatched, and without experience. As we um, prepare to close, I'm going to give you a couple points by way of application in a minute, but I just want to remind us that we are in a spiritual war and we don't need the world's weapons or the world's warfare tactics. They're broken. They don't work. We don't fight as the world does. Notice where it says, I, I love the language there, it says that he put off Saul's armor. And can I encourage you, if you're in a crisis, don't fight the crisis with the veracity of the crisis. You can't fight sin with sin. We are called to put on the Lord Jesus Christ as we put off the armor and warfare tactics of this world. The purity of the gospel and the purity of the church suffers when we use the weapons of this world as God's people. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So, four reminders by way of navigating um, through crisis, through faith, from our passage. By faith, view the present crisis that you are in as this crisis, not the crisis. Because the God who's delivered you from every other this crisis is the God who's walking with you in this present crisis. You hear that? View the present trial you're in as this crisis, not the crisis. For God is walking with you in this one just like he's walked through the previous. Two, when a a crisis sets in, keep watch over your own motives and let God take care of other people's motives. Let the picture of Eliab serve as a reminder of you just how wrong we can be when we set out to judge other people's hearts in a time of crisis. Three, when you're inclined to fear, stop, literally stop. Because sometimes when you're having fear, you're just running around like a nut, you know? You just stop. Recount. Give an account of past times of God's faithfulness in crisis and realize that he's still the same God. It's good for the soul. Lastly, if God's called us to a difficult step of obedience, you're not safer by remaining in the place of indecision.
there is no safer place to be than in the center of the will of God. So put on the Lord Jesus Christ, who fights our battles ahead of us. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for your scripture. Thank you for the many examples that the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly. They're not carnal. They're spiritual for the destruction of enemies' forces and strongholds, Lord. May we put on the Lord Jesus Christ and set our minds and our thoughts are where you are, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Or as Romans thirteen fourteen says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that we would leave here having put on your love, and your power. And may we leave in the strength of your might, O God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.